Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Saturday, May the 11th, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Nick Herter. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and Dear Abby. The third hour continues with more sports and lighter news. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Our AccuWeather forecast says it will be mostly sunny and comfortable today. Winds west-northwest 7 to 14 miles per hour. Partly cloudy tonight, winds south-southwest 6 to 12 miles per hour. The anticipated high today is 77 degrees with a low of 55 degrees. Mostly sunny and comfortable today. Tomorrow's high will be 83 degrees with a low of 59. A thunderstorm. uh, It says a thunderstorm around and then doesn't say when, but I think it's supposed to happen in the evening. So it looks like it'll be a pretty good day for Mother's Day tomorrow. Uh, Looking out the rest of the week, Monday high is 67, Tuesday 71. Uh, Monday's going to have some thunderstorms. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, 71, Thursday, 71, with some afternoon showers, and Friday, 75. Uh, Sunrise today, uh, 5.59 a.m., sunset tonight at 8.23 p.m., moonrise today, 8.28 a.m., and moonset today, it says none. I don't know, quite know what that means. Anyway, on to the headlines on the front page of the paper to this today. First, we've got Piper Lewis on Lamb Again and Honoring the Fallen Memorial Ceremony Salutes Des Moines Algona Police Officers. And then DOJ sues Iowa over immigrant reentry law. Now here's Nick with our first article. We stand shoulder to shoulder to show the world that we remember the commitment of those who have given their all to serve people of Iowa. And that's a quote from Tony Liston, the Iowa State Patrol chaplain. And pictured in this article is Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds consoling a fallen Des Moines officer, Pumkim Tran's widow, Chalu Fun Tran during a memorial ceremony for two fallen Iowa police officers at the Iowa Peace Officer Memorial on Friday. Officer Tran was forced to retire after being hit by a truck while directing traffic at an Iowa State Fair in 2011. He died in November 2023 from complications from his injuries. And the story is called titled Honoring the Fallen, Memorial Ceremony Salutes Des Moines, Algona Police Officers. The storm clouds parted Friday just ahead of a ceremony at the Iowa Capitol grounds honoring two of the state's law enforcement officers who died in service to the public. The sun shone down on the Iowa Peace Officer Memorial as Dignitaries praised the two officers, Kevin M. Cram and Pukum Tran, who, ha- who now have their names etched in marble for the rest of time. It is a time to put aside that which may divide us and focus on what unites us. It is a time to reflect upon the 198 names inscribed upon these walls. Iowa Department of Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Bayen said in his opening remarks, It is time to honor all of those who have selflessly gave their lives protecting yours. The families of the two officers were joined by Governor Kim Reynolds, 
Iowa State Patrol Chaplain Tony Liston, and hundreds of members of law enforcement, including the Iowa State Patrol Honor Guard, the Des Moines Police Department, members of the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy, and more. We stand shoulder to shoulder to show the world that we remember the commitment of those who have given their all to serve the people of Iowa, Liston said. As we come together today to show support for the families and to express to them publicly that we remember, we come to display unity as a people and to dem demonstrate to wrongdoers that good will be defended and protected all at all costs. Kevin M. Cram was from Algona Police Department and was shot and killed on September 13, 2023, while attempting to arrest a suspect on an outstanding warrant. On that fateful day, Officer Cram was serving a routine arrest warrant when the suspect brandished a concealed weapon and without warning fired upon him, Bayon said. Officer Cram's fellow officers and first responders rushed to his aid, but injuries were too severe, and he later succumbed to his wounds. He was a loving husband to his wife, Laura, and a devoted father to his three children. He was a brother. He was a son, a dear friend to all who knew him, and an invaluable member of the Algona community, Bayon said. Cram served for 10 years in law enforcement. His commitment to those ideals he swore to uphold and protect was unwavering, Bayon said. Poonkem Tran of the Des Moines Police Department was forced to retire after being hit by a truck while directing traffic at the Iowa State Fair in 2011. He died on November 2, 2023 from complications from his recovery over a decade later. He was violently struck by a drunk driver, Bayan said. The critical injuries he suffered to his head and internal organs forever changed his life. Over the next 10-plus years, Officer Tran fought to regain his former life, relearning even the simplest of everyday tasks. Tran's wife, Shalufon, was joined by their sons, his siblings, their grandchildren, and nieces and nephews at the ceremony. He leaves behind a legacy of courage and resilience that will forever be remembered, Bain said. Tran joined the Des Moines Police Department in 1982 and spent 18 years as a cadet before, working, before becoming a full-time officer in 2000. He worked with the city's Southeast Asian community and served as a translator for his colleagues. As we gather to honor their ultimate sacrifice, may we all remember to remain grateful for the work that they gave their lives performing, Reynolds said at a ceremony. Today, we pause to honor the strength of character and sense of duty that drives our law enforcement officers through every shift. Captain Anthony Tony Hoffman of the Ionia or, yeah, Ionia Fire Department was honored by the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation at the 43rd Annual Memorial Weekend on May 5th in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Hoffman died after a collision on his way to respond to a field fire on October 22, 2023. <laughs> Thanks to their heroism, we have the luxury of not wondering who will protect us and have the confidence to go about our daily lives without fear, Reynolds said. On behalf of all Americans, I want to express our deepest gratitude and unrelenting support. Piper Lewis on lamb again. Warrant sought after fleeing in Georgia. This is written by Philip Jones and William Morris of the Des Moines Register. Des Moines sex trafficking victim Piper Lewis has again absconded from her probation in a manslaughter case, this time while at a facility in Georgia, according to court records. Iowa probation officials have asked for the issuance of a nationwide warrant for her arrest, and the Iowa Department of Corrections confirmed Friday that her whereabouts are unknown. Steve Davis, spokesperson for the Iowa Judicial System, said he did not know whether a warrant was issued because under Iowa law it would remain sealed until it is served. Lewis, now age 19, 
received a deferred judgment in September of 2022 in the 2020 stabbing death of Zachary Brooks, age 37, who she said she killed after he repeatedly raped her when she was age 15. Placed on probation, she cut off her ankle monitor and walked away from a Des Moines facility and was later arrested. In May of 2023, the Polk County judge in the case, David Porter, revoked the deferred judgment for voluntary manslaughter and willful injury and ordered her to serve 20 years in prison. But he then placed her on probation again with the support of prosecutors as Lewis's attorneys sought placement for her in a facility more suitable than the one in Des Moines, which was intended for adult offenders. Lewis's location had been kept highly confidential to protect her after her story gained national attention. A probation violation report filed this month said that in November, Lewis was sent to the House of Cherith in Atlanta, which treats women who have been sexually exploited. The report said that while there, Lewis repeatedly broke house rules, including using a contraband phone to communicate with a man, taking unauthorized photos, receiving unauthorized phone calls, conducting prohibited financial transactions, and threatening to harm herself and others. In March, the report said, Lewis absconded from a medical appointment and spent an extended period of time with a man she later admitted to engaging in intimate relations with instead of going to her appointment, according to the report. After her return March 21st, the report said she was dismissed from the House of Cherith. While it is regrettable that Ms. Lewis was unable to meet the milestones expected during her residency, the team at the center extends our sincerest prayers and best wishes to her as she embarks on her future endeavors, her case manager wrote, according to the report. Taken to, the Ful taken to Fulton County, Georgia probation office on March 22nd, Lewis reported to her probation officer and said she was homeless, according to the report. She was fitted with a GPS monitoring device and told to report to the probation office weekly until she found stable housing. But she failed to keep the appointments or to charge the device, the report said. After April 6th, Lewis's probation officer lost touch with her and no longer could locate her, despite repeated attempts, the report said. Due to the defendant's continued non-compliant history, whereabouts being unknown, and this being an interstate compact case, the report said, the probation officer is require, requesting a national warrant be issued on this matter. Once the defendant is apprehended, it is being recommended that she remain in custody until sentencing on this matter, the probation officer wrote. If violations are found to exist, it is being requested that the defendant's probation be revoked and the original sentence be imposed. Lewis's attorney at the Iowa Juvenile Public Defender's Office, Paul White, Magdalena Reese, and Matthew Sheely, were permitted to withdraw from her case in March after saying they had completed all necessary services on her behalf and that the office had closed Lewis's case. When Lewis was sentenced the first time in 2022, she received an outpouring of public support, including tens of thousands of dollars in donations to a GoFundMe to help cover the $175,000 she was ordered to pay the family of Brooks, the man she killed under Iowa law. Porter, the judge, warned Lewis that she was getting a second chance, but she would not get a third chance. Well, Ms. Lewis, this was your second chance that you asked for. You don't get a third. Do you understand that? Porter asked Lewis at the time. Despite placing Lewis on probation again, Porter said last May that he stood by that statement, revoking the deferred judgment. Nick, back to you. DOJ sues Iowa over immigrant re-entry re law. Lawsuit claims measure counters national efforts. The U.S. Department of Justice officially filed suit against Iowa on Thursday, arguing that the state's new immigration law criminalizing illegal reentry is unconstitutional and should be blocked from going into effect. 
in its lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Iowa, the DOJ argues that Senate File 2340, which allows Iowa police to arrest undocumented immigrants who have previously been deported or barred from the U.S., violates federal law and undermines existing immigration efforts. The litigation comes a week after a top DOJ official warned state leaders to stop enforcing the law or be brought to court, and hours after civil rights group filed their own suit seeking to block the law, the American Immigration Council, American Civil Liberties Union, and ACLU of Iowa filed the suit against the state on behalf of Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice. Iowa cannot disregard the U.S. Constitution and settled Supreme Court precedent, said Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Brian M. Boynton in a statement. We have brought this action to ensure that Iowa adheres to the framework adopted by Congress and the Constitution for regulation of immigration. The lawsuit challenges the law under the Supremacy Clause and Commerce Clause in the U.S. Constitution. Iowa's efforts through Senate File 2340 intrude on the federal government's exclusive authority to regulate the entry and removal of non-citizens, frustrate the United States immigration operations, and interfere with foreign relations. Boynton and other DOJ officials write in the lawsuit. Governor Kim Reynolds and Attorney General Brenna Byrd, both Republicans, have signaled they intend to defend the law which passed the GOP-led Iowa legislature and was signed into law last month. It takes effect July 1st. The DOJ and ACLU are suing Iowa for protecting our citizens, all while Joe Biden refuses to enforce immigration laws already on the books, Reynolds wrote on social media Thursday afternoon. If he won't stand for the rule of law, Iowa will. Iowa's law has spurred harsh opposition from immigration advocates as well as questions from police and county attorneys who have received no guidance on how to enforce the law or prosecute cases involving it. Penalties under Senate file... 2340 can range from 2 to 10 years in prison, and judges can order that a person convicted under the law be deported back to their country of origin. It mimics a Texas law that has been blocked by the courts while a lawsuit challenging its constitutionality is decided. Costs eat much of Iowa Sheriff Group donations. This is on page two of the front section of the Des Moines Register. It's written by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Iowans have donated more than $3 million in recent years to a group of Iowa sheriffs, but only $1 million of that has been spent on the stated purpose of helping children and educating law enforcement personnel. In fact, more than 60% of Iowans' donations to the sheriffs in 2022 were consumed by the expenses of a for-profit marketing company. For years, the Iowa State Sheriffs and Deputies Association Institute, which is a nonprofit tax exempt organization with a mission of sending underprivileged children to camp and educating law enforcement personnel, has raised money in Iowa through direct mail solicitations. Iowans who are targeted by the campaign are typically sent a letter on letterhead from their own county sheriff seeking contributions to provide critical support and training for law enforcement to help send underprivileged children to camp and to provide support for the Iowa Special Olympics. Some of the letters offer donors a set of credentials in return for a donation, a membership card for the donor's wallet, a window decal, and a bumper sticker. Such items have been used by various police associations for decades as fundraising incentives, but they also have generated controversy. Because they are items that might be displayed on or in a vehicle during a traffic stop, some have argued they imply that donors can expect, if not receive, favorable treatment when pulled over. Earlier this year, the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office promoted the campaign on its Facebook page, 
asking citizens to donate and play an active role in helping make our community a safer place by providing resources and services to the sheriffs of Iowa. According to the Institute's most recently disclosed tax returns, the sheriffs hired a fundraising company, Altus Marketing, collected $471,987 in by sending out such direct mail solicitations in 2022. Of the funds raised, Altus Marketing kept $292,832 and the sheriff's organization received $179,155, according to the tax records. The sheriffs then spent $108,375 sending children to a YMCA camp, donated $10,000 to the Special Olympics, and contributed $4,000 to an Iowa State Sheriff's Association museum. That would suggest the sheriff's total charitable expenses that year were $122,375. As in years past, one of the organization's biggest annual expenses is tied to meetings and conventions, which accounted for $185,424 in spending during 2022. Sergeant Sean Ireland of the Lynn County Sheriff's Office is the organization's current president, and says the Iowa State Sheriffs and Deputies Association Institute has struggled with the expense of fundraising. It is expensive to have a fundraiser, he said. The funds that we get do go to good things, but it takes money to make money, and it's hard to run a program like that by ourselves because we're full-time sheriffs and deputies. So we hire a company that does the fundraising for us, and we never solicit by phone. We always send out those letters. The 2022 spending by the Iowa State Sheriffs and Deputies Association Institute is similar to what the group has reported to the Internal Revenue Service in previous years. From 2016 to 2022, only about $1 million, or 33% of the roughly $3 million Iowans donated in that time, was used for the stated purpose of training officers and helping underprivileged children. Ireland said that while it's not ideal to spend so much with a professional fundraising company, the sheriffs have yet to find a better way to raise money. If there's a better way to raise money or help do those things, we would be all ears if somebody has a better solution for us, he said. Of course, we would like to have a better outcome. We work to improve our processes always, but currently, it just seems like this is the best way for us to do that kind of business right now. Iowa drought eases up, but pockets of concern exist. For the first time in nearly two years, no part of Iowa has extreme drought, the second most severe dryness classification of the U.S. Drought Monitor. A new report on Thursday that takes into account recent significant rainfall shows spots of extreme drought in northeast Iowa have vanished and had to, had to overall footprint of drought in the state continues to shrink, though about 37% of Iowa has some measure of drought, it's down from 97% in September. Iowa is wetter as a whole than it has been in nearly a year. Most of the lingering drought is in the eastern half of the state, where a vast expanse of formerly extreme dryness is subsiding. About 19% of the state still has severe drought, and third most severe level. The classifications are based on the analysis of precipitation, stream flows, and temperature, along with local observations of plants and soil moisture, among other data. Last week, the state received an average of about 2.23 inches of precipitation, which was more than double what, it typically, what is typically expected. Moderate rainfall is expected throughout the state in the next seven days, with the highest amounts of eastern and southern Iowa, uh, according to National Weather Services. And in other um, weather stories around the world, climate activist Chip 
or excuse me, that's not a weather story, but climate activist Chip Magna Carta case. Uh, two climate protesters attempted to smash the reinforced case holding an original text of the Magna Carta in a British library in London on Friday before the pair, one an Anglican priest, were stopped by security staff. In a video clip posted by Just Stop Oil on social media, Reverend Dr. Sue Parfit, 82, held a chisel over the case as Judy Bruce, 85, hit it with a lump hammer several times. Parfit then held up a banner saying, the government is breaking the law. The historic document was not damaged and the toughened glass of the case was only slightly chipped, the library said in a statement. There are only four original Magna Carta texts, the 13th century English treaty, which established that nobody was above the law. Two of them are kept in the British Library, one in Salisbury Cathedral and the other is held in Lincoln Castle. Um, Scotland reports case of mad cow disease. The Scottish government on Friday confirmed a case of classical bovine spongy form in enphalomphithy, uh, known as mad cow disease, at the farm in southeast or southwest of the country, the first British case of the disease in over two years. The government has imposed precautionary movement restrictions as impacted premises and on animals that have been in contact with the case in the Ashrire, it said in a statement. And finally, the last story in brief, whales reappear in Argentina after a hundred years. Giant blue-gray sea whales that vanished from Argentina's Patagonian coast a century ago due to hunting are starting to flourish once again, demonstrating how species can recover when measured to protect them are put in place. In the 1920s and 1930s, regular whaling ships along the shores of Argentina and beyond saw populations dwindle. In the last 50 years, global bans on commercial whaling have helped populations revive. They disappeared because they were hunted. They did not become extinct, but were so reduced that no one saw them, said Mariano Coscarella, biologist and researcher in marine ecosystems at the Argentine State Science Body, Connecticut. Thanks, Nick. I will move over to the Metro and Iowa section. Our top story, Reynolds signs $8.91 billion state budget. It's written by Stephen Gruber-Miller. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has signed the state's $8.91 billion budget into law for the upcoming fiscal year. Reynolds, a Republican, signed 10 appropriations bills into law Thursday afternoon. The legislation contains money for a range of state agencies and departments for fiscal year 2025, which begins July 1st. The money for most agencies comes from Iowa's general fund, while other funds like the Road Use Tax Fund and Rebuild Iowa Infrastructure Fund pay for specific programs like road and building repairs and construction. The spending marks an increase of 4.2% or $361 million over last year's spending of $8.55 billion. Republican lawmakers who hold majorities in the House and Senate budgeted far below the legal limit of 99% of state revenues. Iowa is projected to end the coming fiscal year with a $2.41 billion surplus. $929.9 million in reserve funds, and $3.76 billion in the State Taxpayers Relief Fund. In addition to funding, the budget bills include several items setting state policy like a ban on diversity, equity, and inclusion offices at Iowa's public universities. In another article, Des Moines Heritage Trust reveals year's most endangered buildings. This is written by Addison Lathers of the Des Moines Register. A one-room schoolhouse in Ankeny, a minister's one-time home near Drake University, 
and a former fraternal hall in Highland Park joined the list of seven historic buildings in the metro that the Des Moines Heritage Trust says are at risk of demolition this year. The trust released its second annual rundown of the most endangered buildings in Des Moines this week, an undertaking it hopes will raise awareness about preserving historic local structures. Four buildings reappear from the first list. One of the 2023 buildings, the Highland Apartments at the corner of Euclid Avenue and 6th Avenue, has since been demolished in favor of a new mixed-use development. As we saw with those buildings on last year's list, we aren't going to be able to save all of them, Tim Waddle, president of the Des Moines Heritage Trust, said in a news release. However, we can make a difference. As neighbors and community leaders, we can encourage reinvestment of those buildings that have played an important part in the development and growth of our neighborhoods, communities, and the families. Here are the buildings on this year's list. New on the list, Nagel School. From 1900 to 1952, the building at 2715 Southwest Ora Labor Road in Ankeny served as a one-room schoolhouse for the Nagel School District, which later merged with Ankeny Schools. By 1957, the school had been converted to a two-bedroom home for the family of Howard Pearson, who ran a cafe in Ankeny, according to the trust. A trucking company used the property as an office from about 1990 to 2019. The schoolhouse was then sold to nonprofit Christian educational network Fairmont Education for $640,000, though Fairmont has since listed it for $1.4 million. The building is likely to be raised as the property is marked for neighborhood commercial development in Ankeny's land use plan. A new on the list, the IOOF Hall. Another new addition to the Trust's annual list is the International Order of Odd Fellows Fraternal Hall, not far from the Highland Park Business District. Built in 1907, the building served Highland Park College, which merged with Des Moines College and Central University of Iowa in 1918. Since 1930, several makeovers have reduced the size of the building's windows and removed its original lodge hall and offices. The original entrance was, was moved to the corner and architectural details have been obscured with layers of paint, the trust added. The last first floor tenant, A to Z Pawn, moved out a couple years ago. The 12 apartments above are vacant, according to the Des Moines Heritage Trust. The building faced a possible public nuisance designation from the city earlier this year as Des Moines Neighborhood Services cited its deteriorating roof. Also new on the list, George Peak Home. Once the home of the Reverend George Peak, 1080 22nd Street, was built in 1900 and donated to Drake University in 1944 for use as student housing. Peak played an instrumental role in building downtown's insurance exchange building, now known for its neon-lit traveler's umbrella sign and a plaque on the building honors him. The two-story Peak home has elements of the Georgian revival and classical architectural styles. Its east facade once had a semicircular portico with four columns, which was removed over 30 years ago, the trust said. On the second story, under the portico was a balcony, and there were five bedrooms upstairs around a central hall. New Life Center Church has been the owner since 2011. Still endangered, <clears throat> George the Chili King. A returning item from the Heritage Trust's 2023 list, George the Chili King, just east of the busy intersection of Hickman and Merle Hay Roads, was last remodeled in 1983. The restaurant has retained much of its original charm and look over the years, and since closing in 2019 after the death of George the Chili King Carados Jr., no demolition permit has been applied for. However, there is literally a sign it could be in danger. It's, it lost its landmark George the Chili King sign in March <clears throat> as a crew used a crane to take down the neon artifact. Des Moines uh, photographer, 
let's see, where there, Andy Lyons caught the moment and said the workers told him a collector had bought it. Plans for the site are unknown, the Des Moines Heritage Trust said. Still endangered is the Salvation Army building, located at 219 East Court Avenue. The former warehouse center of the Salvation Army in central Iowa was built in the 1920s as a factory and distribution center for the National Biscuit Company, better known for its brand name, Nabisco. The Salvation Army took over the larger building in the 1960s. It sits next to the organization's headquarters at 211 East Court Avenue, acquired in 1956. The state shut down the warehouse in September 1999 after an inspector discovered improper asbestos removal by untrained workers. Since then, it has survived a 2008 flood and served as an events center in 2009, according to the Des Moines Heritage Trust. Current plans for the building are unknown. In 2021, the Salvation Army requested the building be replaced with a new structure, but the plan stalled over land use issues, according to the Des Moines Heritage Trust. Also still on the list is the Butler Building, built in 1906. The brick structure at 1501 Grand contained 16 apartments and two retail spaces. Originally occupied by the H.S. Chase, Gre Gre Chase Grocery Store and Meat Market. The Des Moines Heritage Trust says the building serves as an example of early 20th century architecture with distinct influences of Renaissance and Georgian styles. For the past 50 years, music venues and bars such as Blues on Grand, Vicky's Poor House, and most recently Gas Lamp occupied the first floor. Since the building's inclusion on last year's list, the Gas Lamp closed on July the 9th in part because its landlord, Krauss Plus, plans to renovate the building as part of a broader redevelopment in the Western Gateway District. The company, which has its headquarters in a dynamic Renzo Piano-designed building across the street from the Pacpa John Sculpture Park on Grand Avenue, has acquired multiple properties in the district and has ambitious plans, including a hotel and six mixed-use commercial buildings. It already has remodeled another nearby building, a former Chevrolet dealership on Ingersoll Avenue, to house Big Grove Brewery's Des Moines Tap Room and the Homegrown Restaurant. Krauss Plus was awarded $23 million in state tax incentives for plans to renovate the gas lamps building into a four-story mixed-use property. It announced on Facebook in February that it, maintaining the music venue is not a part of the final plan. As of 2021, Krauss Plus planned to start construction at the beginning of 2025. The company has yet to apply for building permits, city records show. And still on the endangered list is the uh, Jefferson Apartments. Krauss Plus also owns the empty Jefferson Apartments, a few doors west of the Butler Building at 1519 Grand Avenue. Nothing has happened there since the company announced plans for renovations in 2021. The building, constructed in 1915, originally had 52 apartments and a cafe. Renovations in 1938 by the Bankers Life Company converted the apartments into 72 smaller units, according to the Des Moines Heritage Trust. When tenants received non-renewal notices in July 2021, Jerry Haberman, president of Krauss Plus, told the Des Moines Register the building was in need of significant repairs and the units needed to be empty to determine the full scope of the work. He said demolition was on the table, though he signaled the company hoped to save the historic structure and maintain affordable units in its renovation plans. City records show no applications for permits at that address in the last three years, whether for de demolition or construction. Nick? Protesters enter federal building, urge ceasefire. About 100 people gathered Thursday afternoon outside the Neil Smith Federal Building, urging state and national government officials to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. The rally in downtown Des Moines, organized by the Catholic Peace Ministry and the local chapter of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, comes amid a surge of pro-Palestinian protests sweeping the nation's college campuses, including two of Iowa's major public institutions.
Last week, residents joined students of the Iowa State University campus and called on the institution to cut its ties to Collins Aerospace, a weapons manufacturer in Iowa that produces weapons provided to Israel. A three-day demonstration to touting similar messages was also held at the University of Iowa. On Thursday, protesters demanded officials stop voting for military aid to Israel and start prioritizing humanitarian relief aid to Palestinians, who they say uh, are disproportionately affected by the Israel-Hamas war. They held up signs that read, Stop the Genocide and Complicity is Murder, directed directly calling out U.S. Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Erst and yelling, How many kids did you kill today? Of the 34,151 Palestinians killed in Gaza, 14,685 are children and 9,670 are women. The United <coughs> Nations reported last month another 77,084 have been injured and more than 7,000 are assumed to be under the rubble, the UN also stated. Des Moines Register reporters observed several law enforcement a uh, agents, including two Des Moines police officers who stood outside the building near rally-goers and Department of Homeland Security officers who were in the building posted by the front entrance. A group of about fi 10 to 15 protesters made their way inside the federal building on 210 Walnut Street to present their demands to congressional staff and a list of the names of the thousands of Palestinians' children who have been killed in Israeli attacks on Gaza. Luke Clausen, who works with CPM, told the Des Moines Register he and others spoke with two representatives from Grassley and Ernst's offices, but still felt unheard. Clausen said he believed any argument made against providing support and assistance to the people who need it the most are just cruel. The group, he says, moved to split up with half leading downstairs to occupy the senator's offices while the other half remained downstairs. Glosson said he was among the protesters in the group that was detained by federal officers and issued a citation for disturbing the peace. They came at 5 p.m., which is when the officers closed for the day, he added. Officers warned protesters that they could be arrested for trespassing if they entered the building again, said Kathleen McQuillan, another CPM member who joined Clausen and others inside. McQuillan, who hung out in the building lobby, held up a sign on the grass window telling demonstrators that they won't leave until the senators call for a ceasefire. We are letting people know who don't live in reality, a.k.a. Congress, control how we express ourselves, Clausen told reporters after he was released by officers and walked out of the building. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, also at the rally, moments of silence were held to honor the children who have been killed by Israeli attacks in between songs and chants. Drivers who paused the federal building and honked their horns in solidarity with protesters were met with loud cheers, slap, claps, and clinking of musical instruments. Before heading into the building, protester Samantha Carey stood in the crowd holding a list of youth names in her hands. Carey said she came to show support for the hundreds of grieving families whose children have been killed in Gaza and the children who have lost loved ones and are now orphans. <laughs> it is important to humanity, she said. Last month, President Joe Biden signed into law a $95 billion foreign aid package in which about 27% of proposed budget will go towards supporting Israel and restocking its missile defense systems and providing humanitarian relief for people in Gaza. <laughs> Biden has paused the shipment of 3,500 bombs to Israel over concerns they could be used in a major military operation in Rafah, where more than 1 million refugees have been sheltering. Iowans 
Pay some of the highest prices in U.S. for access to Internet is the title of our final story from the Metro and Iowa section. It's written by Kate Keeley of the Des Moines Register. Internet access has only grown in necessity since the pandemic first sent many workers home and brought more school activities online. Compared to other states, Iowans pay some of the highest prices for access to the Internet, according to a study by High Speed Internet. Just over 92% of Iowa households have a computer, according to 2020 census data. Roughly 86% of Iowa households have a broadband internet subscription. States like Hawaii and South Carolina nearly pay half of what Iowans do for internet access. So how much are Iowans paying to be online? Broadband describes high-speed internet access, according to the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. It's the highest quality internet service and allows video conferencing and telehealth, which require high-speed data transmission. This makes it vital for rural health care providers, according to the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. Fast or advanced internet speed is considered 25 megabits per second and higher, according to the Federal Communications Commission. That rate can serve four users or devices at a time. The more devices online, the slower it will run. The average U.S. household pays $74.17 for varying speeds of internet service every month. Iowa was ranked 8th for having the most expensive internet in 2024. On average, Iowans pay $75.86 for 62.12 median download speeds. That translates to $1.22 per megabit per second. Meanwhile, the 10 states with the cheapest internet pay anywhere from 61 cents to 72 cents per megabit per second. The high-speed internet study found that those who live in rural areas tend to pay more for slower internet speed than urban areas. Since the pandemic, state and federal funding has been offered to close that gap. In 2023, Iowa received over $150 million in federal grants to improve reliable internet connection in the state. What states pay the most for the internet? Alaska, $2.92 per megabits per second, averaging $103.73 a month for 36 megabits per second. Montana at $2.63 per megabit per second, averaging $123.37 a month for 47 megabits per second. And West Virginia at $1.88 per megabit per second, averaging $86.17 a month for 46 megabits per second. What states pay the least for the fastest internet? Connecticut, $0.61 per megabit per second, averaging $72.47 a month for 119 megabits per second. North Dakota, $0.64 per megabit per second, averaging $56.42 a month for 89 megabits per second. And South Carolina, $0.67 per megabit per second, averaging $74.17 a month for 110 megabits per second. Returning back to the uh, front pages, uh, campus arrests continue as commencements loom. As some college seniors prepared to celebrate this weekend, arrests and pro-Palestinian protests continued, pushing some universities to alter their plans. Israel's military campaign in Gaza has killed nearly 35,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza officials since Hamas militants t- attacked Israel October 7th, killing about 1,200 people and taking over 250 hostages. About 33 people were arrested at the University of Pennsylvania early Friday, the campus public safety department said. Philadelphia offers officers dismantled tents and tossed belongings into a trash truck, according to the Daily Pennsylvanian. 
the encampment had lasted for 16 days, according to the student paper. Ten people were arrested at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology early Friday when police cleared an encampment that sent, that went up April 21st, University President Sally Kohnbluth said. In a statement, she called the action a last resort after discussions failed between university officials and protest organizers. The people arrested were peacefully escorted off the lawn, she said, but added that the tensions were not headed in a peaceful direction. I had no choice but to remove such a high-risk flashpoint at the very center of our campus, North Bluth said. Police fired tear gas canisters into a crowd of demonstrators and tore down the encampment at the University of Arizona on Thursday night, the Associated Press reported. The school said in a statement that the structure violated campus policy but didn't say if anyone was arrested. Showing the demonstration's global reach, police moved in on encamped protesters at a University of Calgary in Alberta on Thursday, using what they called non-lethal munitions. The city said it would release the number of arrests Friday. Students at the Rhode Island School of Design ended a four-day occupation of a campus building after the school president threatened them with expulsion Thursday, reported the province journal part of the USA Today network. The students were directed to undergo a restorative justice process that includes listening to people who were affected by the occupation and restoring the building. And in another story, changes to speed process of rejecting asylum seekers who have criminal records. The Biden administration is proposing changes in the asylum process that will allow immigration officials to reject migrants with criminal records sooner. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security on Thursday revealed details of a proposed new rule which would allow asylum officers to deny claims of migrants who have been convicted of a serious crime are linked to terrorism or pose other dangers to public safety. Under current law, a migrant who arrives at the border and undergoes an initial credible fear screening is allowed to continue with the process even if they have a criminal background. They are detained, but processing such cases can take years. Under the proposed regulation, the rejections could instead take place in days, DHS said. DHS officials call DHS official on a call with a reporter's declined to offer an estimate of how many asylum seekers could be rejected under the proposal. We don't think that the rule will apply to large numbers of people, but it will apply to the people that we almost concern we are most concerned about, said the office the official who requested anonymity as a condition of the call. Individuals who pose a national security or public safety risk would be subject to the new rule, specifically those who have been convicted of a particularly serious crime, participated in the pers persecution of others, are indemissible on national security or terrorism-related grounds, or for whom there are reasonable grounds to deem them a danger to the security of the United States, according to a DHS statement. Immigration experts say asylum eligibility is complicated and question whether migrants applying for asylum will have access to legal representation that, that early in the process. The main issue here, which we have found repeatedly, is that when cases move quickly, people can't get attorneys, said Austin Kocher, assistant professor at Syracuse University who studies federal immigration enforcement. An attorney might be able on the client's behalf to make inventions, interventions and provide some balance, but the way the policy is being proposed, they want to move this part of the process so fast it's going to be almost impossible for people to get attorneys, Kocher said. President Joe Biden has toughened his approach to 
um, order security in recent months as immigration has emerged as a top concern among voters. Biden has been considering new executive actions to crack down on record record migration at the southern border after congressional Republicans in February blocked border legislation backed by the White House. Congress hasn't done anything meaningful on immigration in a lifetimes of most immigrants, Kocher said. I can completely understand why the Biden campaign and the president himself would want to show they're doing things to make it tougher at the border, to balance out what it is, what is an extremely hardline position from the other side. Trump trial testimony goes from lurid to more logistical. After two weeks of tabloid testimony, literally from the former publisher of the National Enquirer and figuratively from adult film star Stormy Daniels, the temperature turned way down Friday at former President Donald Trump's New York hush money trial. Instead of lurid talk of gold tweezers, boxer shorts, and satirical candles, jurors got a quiet and abbreviated day of logistics. Witnesses testified about technical elements of payments and phone records interspersed with discussions about what evidence could be admitted. Trump faces 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first criminal trial of a former U.S. president. Prosecutors allege he was covering up unlawful interference in the 2016 election through a $130,000 hush money payment to Daniels made by Trump's personal lawyer Michael Cohen. Trump denies he had sex with Daniels and has pleaded not guilty. The prosecution must prove that Trump knew about the payment and that it was made to protect his popularity with voters. Before testimony began, Trump ignored shouted questions from reporters about whether he would testify. Instead, he promoted a weekend rally in New Jersey where he said he would be able to campaign for president despite the horrible gag order that prevents him from commenting on witnesses or jurors. Judge Juan Mershon ruled Thursday against loosening the gag order on Trump. Just before the early end of proceedings Friday, Trump lawyer Todd Blanche told Mershon to gag Cohen, who is expected to testify next week. Blanche argued Mershon has the ability to do that for witnesses as well as for a defendant. He said it was unfair that Trump could not talk about potential witnesses, but Cohen was free to talk about him. Prosecutor Joshua Steinglass said his team has repeatedly told all witnesses to refrain from public statements. Because they aren't under a gag order, Steinglass said, we have no power to order. Mershon got pointed, telling prosecutors to communicate to Mr. Cohen that the judge is asking him to refrain from making any more statements about his case or about Trump. He repeated himself for emphasis. Still, Trump complained after leaving the courtroom for the week that Mershon had, hadn't done anything formal to quiet Cohen. Everybody can say whatever they want. They can say whatever they want, but I'm not allowed to say anything about anybody. It's a disgrace, he said. On Thursday evening, after leaving the witness stand, Daniels, who agreed during her testimony that she hates Trump, slammed the former president on X. Real men respond to testimony by being sworn in and taking the stand in court. Oh, wait, never mind. Trump's former White House assistant, Madeline Westerhout, finished her testimony Friday by agreeing that Trump kept a close eye on financial matters. Mershon struck one of her comments from the record. Westerhout had said, that when news of the Daniels payments came out in 2018, Trump was very upset because he knew it would be hurtful to his family. But she then said, I don't, I don't believe he specifically said that. Employees of AT&T and Verizon briefly took the stand so the prosecution could introduce phone records involving Cohen and former Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weiselberg. Paralegals in Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's office spoke about various social media posts, text messages, and phone records. They included a series of 2016 texts between Daniels' former manager, Gina Rodriguez, and the ex-editor of the National Enquirer, Dylan 
Howard. That brings us to the top of the hour, and it's time to celebrate our listener birthdays. But before we do listener birthdays, let's take a look at celebrity birthdays. Fashion designer Valentino turns 92. Religious leader, political activist Louis Farrakhan turns 91. Singer Eric Burden of the Animals turns 80. Tim Blake Nelson turns 60. Actor Jeffrey Donovan, 56. Actor Kobe Bell, 49. Rapper Cardinal Offshaw, 48. Rapper Ace Hood, 36. And actor Annabelle and Atanasio, 31. Lana Condor, 27. Coy LeRae, 27. And Sabrina Carpenter turns 25.